KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. San Diego files its first criminal charges against a non-compliant business. Strategy that I, I think tries to say, look, the, the carrot maybe hasn't worked. Here's the stick. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The San Diego County Registrar tackles questions about mail-in voting. We will be sending out a countywide mailer to all registered voters this week, telling them and stating all the different changes that will be occurring with this upcoming election. One of San Diego's underwater treasures is threatened by a warming climate. And some tips on how to spend and how not to spend in this uncertain economy. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. After weeks of encouraging voluntary compliance, San Diego County has issued its first formal charge against a business for allegedly violating COVID-19 public health orders. Peter San Nicholas, owner of Ramona Fitness Center, faces five misdemeanor charges for keeping his gym in operation after a shutdown order. It may be the first of many legal actions against non-compliant businesses and individuals by the San Diego County District Attorney. That office says it's currently reviewing other cases of repeated violations of public health orders. Joining me is Greg Moran with the San Diego Union-Tribune, which covered this story. And Greg, welcome to the program. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me. What is the gym owner accused of exactly? Well, these are five misdemeanor charges. The actual charge is violating the uh, State Emergency Services Act. So this is the law that uh, we're living under, essentially, uh, as long as there is, is a state of emergency. Um, this is the one that gives uh, the governor and executives and public health officials all kinds of extraordinary power uh, that we've seen in action over the past several months. Uh, to manage uh, a, a, an emergency, a crisis, whether in this case, obviously the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, but it can also be used for earthquakes or floods or things like that. So he's, he's uh, accused of breaking that law by not complying with the public health orders and shutting down his gyms. What kind of penalty is San Nicolas facing? So these are all misdemeanors. So it's a maximum of six months in in jail, which is, I think, highly unlikely, and a $1,000 fine. There are particularly onerous penalties. I think that, that the penalty is really, uh, you know, they send a very strong signal to other businesses, to this particular businesses and others, about complying with the uh, public health orders. Now, a UT reporter interviewed San Nicholas yesterday. How is he responding? It's very interesting. Uh, my colleague, Alex Riggins, who really reported this story out, talked to him at some length, and he's saying, uh, I think what a lot of business owners are saying, which is like, look, uh, I shut down uh, in March in the, in the first shutdown, and I lost a lot of money. I think he said he lost up to a quarter of a million dollars. Um, and that uh, he's had this business, this fitness uh, center in Ramona for 20 years. 
And then when he reopened, he was closed for, I think, about three months, 80, 85, 90 days, something like that. He reopened in early June, and then he was told to shut back down again. And he, he was saying, look, if I had uh, closed down then, I never would have reopened. He has relatives who run businesses, a daycare, I think, uh, which you know is likely to shut down for good. So his response was, he's trying to run his business safely. He doesn't think he's endangering people. He's certainly not, he says he's not doing it on purpose, but he is trying to run his business. He's trying to make a living uh, and he can't do that if he's closed. Now the county has allowed gyms to operate outdoors. Isn't that an option for him? I think it would be. Um, I don't know exactly why he he didn't uh, you know, avail himself of that. But some can do it, some can't. You could be, you know, restricted in your sort of physical space or where you're set up or stuff. I'm not quite sure why he didn't uh, go outside other than, uh, you know, all of us in San Diego County know that Ramona in the summertime, although a lovely community, can be a little warm. So maybe maybe that wasn't uh, viable. Now, the county says other referrals to the DA's office for criminal charges against business owners are pending. What sort of legal defense might businesses be able to use to fight back against these types of charges? Apparently, in the article in the UT, a defense attorney says that some of these laws are overbroad and could be challenged. Right. That's always uh, an argument when the, when the government takes an action against somebody. This is uh, so, so that's clearly a defense. You could say, uh, I think also the, the attorney, Carrie Armstrong, is a real experienced criminal defense attorney here in San Diego and a very good one. You know, kind of said, look, you have two things. You, you could argue that it's overbroad. You can argue that it's uh, inconsistent, that there is this overlap and mismatch and, and mixed match of, of uh, local and state orders, county to county, city to city within counties that really make compliance confusing, if not impossible, maybe advantages one over another. Um, so those, you know, those are the kinds of defenses that are available. And in some ways, you know, that line of argument is kind of playing out in other lawsuits that people filed, primarily, you know, churches or faith-based institutions, which are attacking the, the, the stay-home orders as being on a different ground, saying that they're discriminating against it, but still kind of making a similar case, which is like, this is an overreach of state authority, executive authority uh, that is uh, too strong for, for what's needed, but also um, improper. I would say the counter to that is I did a story a couple of months ago about this Emergency Services Act and how Newsom was uh, governing under it and talking to experts in the law. It is an incredibly powerful law. It, it basically gives the governor almost carte blanche to govern in an emergency. Now, it was, I don't think it was ever conceived that you would be a statewide emergency from San Isidro to, you know, Wairica. But, but it gives him an enormous amount of authority. The legislature has expanded, amended, changed that law, has gone along with it. So this is the world we have and the law that we have that is being enforced. So I don't know, you know, short of a legislative change, unless somebody really wants to challenge the base of that law, what you could do. And do you think this case marks a shift in the way San Diego is handling enforcement of public health orders? Well, I think so. I mean, I think it, it got to the point with this second uh, surge or maybe the continuation of the first, however you want to look at it, in, in COVID cases around the county. The noncompliance that you see a lot, uh, both kind of individuals, not wearing masks, but but mostly from uh, some uh, business businesses, uh, gyms seem to be a locus of this, uh, some restaurants, bars, you know, not complying. And the county 
trying for many weeks, months to get people to kind of voluntarily comply, to go along as they said, you know, we hope that we'll educate them and people will obey the laws. I think it's just reached a point with someone like this Jim, which I think uh, the complaints had been cited like five times. Uh, deputies have been out there five times saying, look, you know, you should be closed. Look, you should be closed. I mean, at some point, you know, I think the county must have thought, you know, the hammer has to come down. Uh, and I think part of it too might be, um, you know, this is a kind of a, a graduated step in, in, in this before it was sort of compliance, then it was education you know, now, okay, we'll take you to court. I mean, it's sort of uh, a tactic or a strategy that I, I think tries to say, look, the, the carrot maybe hasn't worked. Here's the stick. I've been speaking with Greg Moran with the San Diego Union Tribune. Greg, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Election day is now three months away, but voting will start earlier, and already questions are swirling around how safe and secure voting will be. We've invited our San Diego County Registrar of Voters, Michael Vu, to join us to answer questions that you, our listeners, have sent in. So, Michael, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. So one of the questions that we got, a very basic one here on Facebook, is from Kathleen Pollitt, who asks, when can we expect to see our ballots arrive in the mail? Well, as uh, she has asked, we are going to send out ballots on October 5th. So that's always 29 days in advance of the election where we start sending out the mail ballots. And so voters should expect October 5th, where all of the ballots, the 1.8 million, over 1.8 million mail ballots will be in the, at the U.S. Postal Service, and then they'll start delivering from there. It's a couple of months. So when will early voting actually start? And, and what are our options for voting this year in San Diego? Yeah, so with the whole pandemic, uh, dramatic, things are happening, uh, our, our dramatic changes are occurring. I, and I think the least of all the dramatic changes is the fact that everyone's going to receive a, a mail ballot. And the reason why I say that is because 75% of the electric electorate is already signed up to receive a mail ballot because they've asked to be a permanent mail ballot voter. So we're really only extending it to the other 25% who generally go to a polling place or that's the only option uh, that is out there. Where the dramatic changes for us as well as the the public is is the the fact that the in-person locations is where most of the changes will occur. As a result of the pandemic, Instead of having, for example, the 1,548 precincts that we had in March, uh, what we plan on having are much larger locations running for multiple days, in fact, four days. So October 31st through November 3rd at 8 p.m., which is election day, uh, at 235 what we call super polls sites. So there will be opportunity to vote in person starting October 31st. Um, How soon can people send in their ballots right away after they receive them? Uh, like any other uh, prior elections, uh, once they receive them, they can vote them. And in fact, we encourage them to vote their ballot, seal it, sign it, and get it back to us as soon as possible. Uh, and they can do so through the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, certainly, we will have double the amount of mail ballot drop-off locations starting the the following after the we send out the mail ballots on October 5th, October 6th. We will have mail ballot drop-off locations, 124 of them throughout the entire co- county running all the way through 8 p.m. on election day for a person to drop off their mail ballot. Or you can drop off your mail ballot at any one of our super poll sites, the 235, which we are in the process of 
solidifying um, on election day or the three days leading up to election day at any one of those sites. Um, but what I highly encourage voters to do is go through the U.S. Postal Service to return your ballot or to one of our mail ballot drop-off locations. Again, part of our campaign is vote, uh, vote safer San Diego. Um, and part of doing that is to get it through the U.S. Postal Service, one of our mail ballot drop-off locations. Certainly you can drop it off here um, or at one of our uh, polling sites, super poll sites. But again, we're trying to lessen the amount of congregating of individuals that would t take that on election day. We are um, trying to uh, communicate to voters that, uh, again, don't wait till the last minute, don't congregate in any extent like what we are hearing from our public health officials to avoid doing that. And again, to vote safer uh, by voting your mail ballot. So we have a question here from Marga Glasser. This is Marga Glasser from San Diego. My question is, how will the anticipated delays in USPS mail delivery be handled to ensure that all votes are counted? So the state has passed a law extending the timeframe for us to accept a ballot to 17 days after election day, so long as the ballot is postmarked by election day. So how does the registrar make sure that ballots aren't sent to people who, who can no longer vote, for example, because they died, one of our listeners asks. Part of our program, which goes back to a federal law called the National Voter Registration Act, a lot of individuals do use the acronym, which is NVRA, uh, really are federal as well as state laws that dictate how we are to maintain our voter registration file. Um, based off of that, we clean our files and maintain our files uh, strictly based off of those federal and state uh, rules. So what we do is, is before we send out any ballots, what we're going to be sending is a countywide mailer. We run what is known as a national change of address against that to see who has potentially moved and then correspond with them. Individuals that have maybe passed away, um, we clean out our, our respective voter registration file. It's not a necessarily a perfect uh, system, though, because there is some lag time associated with it. And it's not in, in real time where all of this information is coming to us and it, they automatically fall off the rolls because we could potentially disenfranchise voters as well. That is, we would never send them a potentially a mail ballot. So we've got to be very careful with that. At the end of the day, though, every voter is given one ballot that they can vote on and return back to our office. We find a, a situation where a person, we uh, send out a mail ballot, but then their status changes. And so we have to suspend that ballot and reissue them a new one. Know that that second ballot has been suspended and we're tracking that ballot, all mail ballots. Now here's a question from Candace Bremond. Hi, my name is Candace Bremond. I live in University Heights. And my question is, assuming I get my ballot in prior to the election, is there any way to check the status of that ballot? The answer to your question is yes, uh, there will be a new service called Where's My Ballot that you can subscribe to. There will be push notifications to you as soon as you subscribe. It's free of charge um, and it's currently on our website, sdvote.com, and it will push information as to the status of your mail ballot as it's getting delivered to you. And then once you vote it and send it back, you can get push notification as it's working its way back to our office as well as uh, when we count the ballot. Now, I've seen some questions on social media about people worried about the signature. Um, Al Ward writes, if we submit a mail-in ballot, our ballot signature will be compared to the one on file. How can we update the signature on file if we're concerned that our current signatures may not match our original one? The best uh, answer to your question is, is by re-registering to vote. 
Um, you can do so in a number of ways. Uh, the safer way, uh, considering there's a pandemic, is to do so online. And what will you will do is, is once you register to vote, it will pull your signature from the DMV and send that signature to us. Now, if you do not have a signature at the DMV, then it will prompt you to uh, print it out, sign it, and send it back to our, our office. We'll scan in that new registration form with your new signature, and that's what we'll compare your mail ballot against. I know some people are concerned that their signature might not be recognized by somebody and their vote might get disqualified. Is that a worry? I Actually, there's a couple of laws that protects a voter. So once we check a signature off of the mail ballot against that on file, if we find out that it does not match, we are actually legally obligated to notify the voter that they have the ability to cure their signature by signing an affidavit and getting it back to our office. Rhonda Scheiss asks, if I mail my ballot back right away, does it get counted as soon as it's received or is it held until all the ballots come in? And if it's held, how secure is it from fire or mischief? So we have the ability, once we send out the ballots and then we receive voted ballots back, uh, to be able to signature verify it, first of all. Uh, We check it in, make sure that it's uh, the person who, who has voted this mail ballot. And then what we have the ability to do is is then extract and scan and tabulate that ballot after it's been received, once it's been verified. Um, And that's, uh, frankly, we can start as as soon as the mail ballots come back to our office. That's a change in the law, I I should mention, because we would normally be able to signature verify, uh, but could not extract and scan in that ballot until the 14th day prior to an election. But now with the change in the law, we can do it as soon as we receive it. So what does that mean for election night? How many of the ballots that have already been received will have been counted? Well, we're hoping to get as many mail ballots into the 8 p.m. release on election night. But that will really depend on voters. Uh, If they return it sooner to our office, the better it's going to be, because then we can, again, signature verify it, extract it, scan it into the system, and then be able to report at 8 p.m. But if it's too late, for us to be able to get through those respective processes, then we most likely will have to wait until the post-election day process and election results updates for it to get counted. How conclusive do you expect the results to be on election night? Well, with mail balloting being the predominant way that voters uh, vote these days, it will depend on how many voting uh, mail ballots have been returned to our office for us to process and then ultimately get into the count. These days, it's really extends out much further than just election day. So uh, we're hoping that many of them, there are wide gaps. That's always an election official's uh, prayer is, is that there are wide margins, regardless of who's winning. But at the end of the day, as we know that voters hang on to their mail ballots and they don't return them until closer to election day. We're hoping that's not the case this election. But if it happens to be the case, you know, these close contests could go all the way up until we certify the election, which is 30 days after election day. Now, we've got a question here from uh, one of our listeners who says, a couple of months ago, I submitted an online application to volunteer at the polling booths uh, anywhere on Election Day, but I haven't received a reply. Do you still need any help? Well, we are looking at that right now in terms of our poll worker force. As you can imagine, this pandemic has co- created uh, across issues across the entire spectrum. Uh, we're not immune to that from an elections uh, point of view in, in terms of conducting the elections. Uh, really what we're doing right now is, is kind of assessing how we're really going to conduct the election. Uh, we won't have your traditional neighborhood polling places on election day as voters have been accustomed to. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, is, is that 
polling locations that we will have will be con super consolidated, which we're having much larger facilities that we would need to operate from for social distancing purposes to keep everyone uh, safe and healthy. Um, and as a result of that, we're having to change the dynamics of how we recruit poll workers as well as train poll workers. Um, before, in a traditional polling place world, we would need 9,000 volunteer poll workers. In this super consolidated world, where we're thinking around 235 super sites, uh, we're going to need around 3,500 individuals uh, across four days. That's a big change up for our normal poll workers. The other considerations that we have to take into account is, is that as opposed to working one day, it's going to be an eight-day affair, uh, four days to work potentially, uh, two days worth of training. Normally, it's a two-hour on-site training, and as well as the site set up one day and the breakdown the following day. So it's an eight-day minimum commitment. So any last words of advice? Uh, we will be sending out a countywide mailer to all registered voters this week. So voters should expect it within the next couple of weeks uh, in their mailbox, saying and telling them and stating all the different changes that will be occurring with this upcoming election. I think the most important aspect with this upcoming election is to right now is to everyone to uh, check their status of their residence address as well as their mailing address, which will be on this mailer of what we have on file for them. And if it's different, then they these individuals would need to re-register to vote with our office by simply going to sdvote.com. Only takes two minutes. We've been speaking with Michael Vu, who is San Diego County's Registrar of Voters. Michael, thank you. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. The warming climate is putting environmental pressure on California forests that have towered over the Golden State for thousands of years. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says underwater forests are facing the same kind of threat. Ed Parnell didn't have to walk far from San Diego Scripps Pier to find strands of giant kelp washed up on the beach. The root system is called the holdfast that holds the kelp plant to the bottom. Right there you can see that. They really aren't roots. The Scripps Institution of Oceanography biologist says that's how the algae stays anchored to the ocean floor. Once anchored, they grow up. Basically, it puts out these stipes, and each individual stipe puts out these blades that then make it up to the surface for it to photosynthesize up near the surface. Small gas-filled bubbles carry the long stems to the surface where the blades can soak up the sunshine. Parnell says giant kelp can grow up to two feet a day, making it one of the fastest growing living things on the planet. The canopy depends on how much bottom, hard bottom, is located at depth. Here off San Diego, we have the two largest kelp forests off the west coast because we have hard bottom that the kelp can attach to um, in, over large areas. Underwater, the giant kelp forests off the coast of La Jolla and Point Loma can be spectacular. Biologists have compared them to an underwater forest of sequoias, but unlike the giant trees, kelp grows fast and dies fast. These young kelp that were videotaped just off the shores of San Diego are already reaching skyward in the cool Pacific Ocean. 
plants can quickly reach lengths of 100 feet, but their lifespan is pretty short in this vital but delicate ecosystem. Parnell says the kelp provide food and habitat. But the kelp forest, the bottom hosts a lot of habitat for species that live in the kelp forest over their entire lifetime. Parnell says giant kelp in San Diego is under siege. Storms and sea urchins have taken a toll, but the potentially more devastating issue is heat. That's on full display at the end of Scripps Pier, where Sean Bruce was one of many people who performed a daily ritual. So the sample we take is about two feet off the bottom, two to three feet off the bottom. Uh, the heavy weight ensures that no matter the surge or the swell that day, um, it'll stay in a fixed position. He's taking temperature readings of the ocean, and those daily temperature readings show that the ocean has been warming here since the mid-1970s. Temperatures hit a sustained peak in 2015 and 2016, and then set records just two years later. The heat is devastating for the fast-growing kelp. Parnell shared a video of a rocky, barren seabed near La Jolla that has yet to recover from those heat waves. It's a rocky area that should be full of kelp. And the problem is not limited to Southern California. Australia, Tasmania, um, especially up in New England, um, also in Europe. And so it's a phenomenon that is affecting these ecosystems uh, in both Northern and Southern hemispheres. Mark Carr studies evolutionary biology at UC Santa Cruz. One of the consequences that warm water temperature has is it reduces the nutrient availability um, to the algae in shallower waters. Southern California kelp are not yet at the point where they're struggling to survive, but the iconic underwater habitat is at risk. Climate science predicts oceans will continue to warm, and data confirms that the trend has been underway for some time. The concern is whether we're now going to start to experience more and more of these heat waves over time. Scripps researcher Ed Parnell says the iconic kelp may already be in trouble, and that could have a dramatic impact on the region's nearshore habitat. They host you know, hundreds of species themselves, and are the, provide, they provide shelter, habitat, and food for many, many species. And losing the kelp forests will make the ocean a little less appealing to humans who dive in the underwater forests will remove a small slice of the state's coastal tourism economy. Joining me is KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. And Eric, welcome. Thank you. Now, for those of us who've never seen an underwater kelp forest, can you describe what that looks like? Well, I have to be honest here. I've never actually been in the water in a kelp forest before, but I've seen pictures and I've seen videos and uh, a small representation at the Birch Aquarium, that big fish tank that they have, uh, the, the massive fish tank that has that like little stadium seating section in there. That's uh, designed to represent what a kelp forest would look like. And basically what it is, is these huge long strands of kelp that uh, reach from the floor of the ocean all the way up to the surface. Uh, and then you have all these different uh, fish species that are uh, both on the ground, on the floor of the ocean, and, and swimming among the kelp, etc. And what makes the waters off San Diego's coast such a good place for kelp forests to grow? Uh, mainly, it's uh, two things. There is plenty of food there. 
uh, and there is what what uh, biologists refer to as a rocky substrate, which basically means that the floor is hard. There are rocks, uh, particularly in a couple of locations where you find the big kelp forests off the region, off the coast of Point Loma and off the coast of La Jolla, near where the children's pool is. There's a rocky bottom there that allows the kelp to kind of grab on and hold on and, and grow toward the surface. And what are some of those species that get their sustenance from San Diego's kelp forests? Yeah, there are a lot of things that uh, live in and around and on uh, the kelp forest. Sea urchins are often there. Um, you find things like uh, sea stars, anemones, crabs, jellyfish. There are also uh, lots of different kinds of rockfish that live uh, in there. Uh, the seven gill sharks, you'll see them in uh, La Jolla. Uh, swimming uh, through the kelp forests. You also see things like uh, sea otters and occasionally a killer whale will look for refuge inside of a kelp forest. And then things that you may not think about that also rely on kelp are birds, crows and starlings and, and others who feed on the uh, flies that are generated as some of that sea kelp washes up on the beach. So they're all also uh, tied to the kelp forest as are gulls and egrets and, and, and even blue herons. Well, so far this summer, water temperatures have been unseasonably cool. Does that help kelp growth? It does. Uh, in fact, uh, kelp grows better when the water is cooler. And that's one of the things that has kept kelp thriving here off the coast of the California shoreline. It's the fact that the Pacific Ocean is a very cool ocean and, and the temperatures are very cool. And that's what really is kind of uh, at risk here with these increasing water temperatures, these long spells of warmer water that really sort of interrupt uh, the growth, uh, the ability of the kelp to grow. And in some cases, they actually uh, force the kelp forest to shrink because they don't thrive very well uh, in that warmer water. Are there signs then that the kelp forests in San Diego are already in trouble? Yeah, and I think the thing that but most biologists will point to is that uh, big heat wave back in 2015 and 2016. They called it the blob. It was this just long, long swath of uh, super warm ocean water along the coast. It lasted long enough that it kept the kelp from kind of regenerating in areas that it normally would. And uh, we talked to Ed Parnell at Scripps, and he says you can still see areas that where the, the kelp was just eliminated and it just hasn't quite grown back. Um, and it doesn't help that there have been subsequent uh, heat events like in 2018. What are the main concerns of the Scripps scientists you talked with about the future of kelp forest here in San Diego? Well, kelp forests are kind of this iconic uh, underwater feature. I know a lot of people don't uh, typically see a kelp forest uh, in its full glory, but it's this habitat that is very rich. Um, it generates a lot of nutrients. It feeds a lot of different species, and it helps uh, with the diversity of life uh, along the California coast. And the concern is, is that if this habitat really gets restricted or shrunken or goes away, uh, that it's going to really hurt the ability of the undersea environment to be as diverse as it possibly can be. You know, Eric, it seems that we're surrounded with so many more immediate problems these days. What would we lose if these spectacular underwater forests were to die off? 
Well, you would lose that visual appeal, of course. Kelp forests are a wonderful place uh, for people who are interested in scuba diving to go and see wildlife. Um, but you lose a little piece of California as well. Kelp forests have been there for hundreds of years, and they've not only drawn uh, species in the ocean to them, they've also drawn people to them as well, who are just kind of amazed by the, the majesty that uh, these uh, underwater areas can be. I mean, you can see these long strands of kelp uh, reaching from the floor of the ocean to the, the ocean surface and, and all this different activity uh, in that habitat. And that would be going away. And not only would we be less rich for that, but it would really kind of change the underwater sphere just off the uh, coast of California. And I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, thank you. My pleasure. The online review service Yelp estimates some 29,000 California businesses on its site have closed since the pandemic started, more than half for good. For those who remain open, businesses weigh down and they're doing what they can to stay afloat. KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman introduces us to one of those owners, Tammy Spunyas, who says she's trying to keep the lost art of alterations alive in La Jolla. The simplest button, you know, to the most ornate wedding dress, we do it, we do it all. This is our livelihood, and it's, it, my mom started it, in, you know, 30 years ago. I don't want to close, and it's going to be the last resort. Kiki's Alterations was started by now 83-year-old Kiki Spunyas, who came to the United States after growing up in Greece. I learned from Greece the tailoring. I'm very happy what I'm doing. A lot of our clients, we actually are doing their grandkids. Kiki's daughter Tammy has taken over majority of the responsibilities. And now I'm more easier. I work less. I come late. I live early. When the pandemic first hit, Kiki shut down for three months. March, April, May, busiest, busiest season. May is the biggest. Uh, that's where I make most of my income. And you were totally closed. Now? We are closed. Yeah. Since reopening in June, business has been down nearly 75 percent. Where income doesn't pay the rent, but I do stay open because I don't want to lose my customer base. I want to let them know that I'm here, that I'm open, um, that I'm ready to do work. It's just no one's traveling, no one's going anywhere. The business did get a PPP loan, which helped cover some expenses, and the owners are applying for a county relief grant. But the possibility of closing is something weighing heavily on everyone. Oh, yeah, very much so. And sometimes I cannot sleep in the night. I'm thinking what's going to happen the next day. Then I call Tammy. Anybody came? We have any business? Oh, mommy, don't worry. One people came or two people came. She's excited. She's getting married. Yeah. <laughs> I do have some weddings and... Um, which is a great treat for me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. I came in for my second fitting and um, getting ready for my wedding August 22nd. So it's coming up. Ali Fawner and her fiance David Adams had been planning a nearly 200 person wedding for more than a year. Yeah, it was going to be the whole whole ordeal, but had to had to make the tough decision just to push it off for a little bit. Now the couple is opting for a small backyard ceremony with plans for a bigger bash sometime next year. It's different, but a lot of us are in the same boat, so yeah, it's been good. Tammy says the majority of her clients have opted to delay their weddings while others are going smaller. Less groomsmen, less bridesmaids, where we get a lot of the business through the bridesmaids. 
and if less people are going, they're not as formal. The pandemic has brought some other changes too. Some consultations are now done over video chat, and Tammy has pivoted to making face coverings. She says she can make them out of almost any material. I've made masks for brides, so I use some of the fabric from their wedding dress to make them a matching mask. With no signs of coronavirus slowing down, Kiki's has some tough months ahead of them, but they're just hoping that the whole industry, tailoring and alterations can survive the pandemic. There is a need for alterations. I think I just have to, you know, stick it out another, probably another year. And uh, hopefully we'll have some funding and um, to keep going, you know, to keep it open because tailor shops are needed. You know, the clothes aren't going to mend themselves. It's a lost art. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Allison St. John with Maureen Kavanaugh. Life has definitely changed due to the coronavirus, and that includes the money we have going in and out of our bank accounts. San Diego County's unemployment rate is estimated to be 16 percent compared to just over 3 percent before the pandemic. If you're one of the 250,000 people in the county who've lost your job, you're sure to have thought about how you'll manage, but maybe haven't thought about how a budget could help. Even if you are still employed, there are good reasons to reassess how we manage our money to avoid financial problems down the line. Joining me to discuss budgeting during a pandemic is Paul Lim, who is a financial advisor with the Wealth Consulting Group and an advisor to the San Diego Financial Literacy Center, a nonprofit that provides free financial services to the community. Paul, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So now, if you're one of those who've lost a job as a result of the pandemic... What can you do to take stock of your financial situation? It's very easy to feel completely overwhelmed, isn't it? It absolutely is. And one of the things I'd encourage people to do first off is measure what matters. And this is something that's always applied in the past. It's going to continue to do so moving forward. But I think the things that we're going to be evaluating these days are just different than what was important before. First off, if you've lost an income or even two household incomes, I would make a point to really figure out which government programs you're eligible for, namely unemployment insurance and things of that nature. You have to have some semblance of cash flow coming in. Once you're able to determine what you can do as far as earning that additional cash coming in, now you really have to be great about putting that budget in place. And I know that people cringe when they hear the B word, but I think if you reframe it in your mind as having a money plan, you're more likely to take some action and feel better about it as opposed to 
see it feeling like you're punishing yourself with scarcity. It feels really scary not being able to pay bills, you know, like like rent or electricity or water. I mean, is there any point in calling the people that you cannot pay? Absolutely. You know, one of the first things we'll do with a budget is we divide the categories of your spending into needs and wants. And I think it's easy for most people to understand about the wants and how to cut some of those subscriptions and memberships come to mind as things that you can forego during this time. But as far as the needs go, this time presents an opportunity for you to work with a lot of your creditors, landlords, companies that you owe some money to and and really negotiate some terms with them and just make and demonstrate a good faith effort that you're willing to pay them when you can. And these days, people are surprisingly accommodating when it comes to things. And all you have to do is make a phone call. The worst thing they can do is say no. So it's worth a try, huh? Um, Supposing that you can't afford your expenses, particularly since the additional $600 in federal benefits has expired, or perhaps you're waiting for your unemployment to come through, what, what are your thoughts on putting expenses on credit cards? If you're lucky enough to be able to get a credit card with 0% APR or something of that nature, that can be a reasonable way for you to still be able to meet those expenses using a little bit of borrowed money. You just don't want to get into a habit of accruing large amounts of double-digit APR sorts of debt. It's like the opposite of an investment. It grows in the opposite direction. So as long as you know that this is a temporary move that you need to make and that you can motivate yourself to pay that off as soon as you're able to do so, it can be a stopgap measure for you to utilize, uh, even if you have to use the credit card a couple times. Mm. How about borrowing from retirement accounts? One of the things that the CARES Act allows people to do is to take a coronavirus-related distribution. And the definition of that is pretty broad. But in essence, you can take up to $100,000 as a withdrawal from a 401k or an IRA or other similar retirement plan, and you don't have to pay a penalty for being younger than 59 and a half. Ordinarily, if you were younger than that age, you would pay 10% on top of income taxes to which you were already subject. They've waived that as a result of the issues that are related to having to access retirement funds. The other nice part about it is you can actually spread the taxes out over the course of three years. Now, a lot of people might not be that concerned about taxes in 2020, but it would be really nice to have the ability to take a large amount of money from a retirement plan, which was really supposed to be future money, and use it for a short-term need while also spreading out the taxes over a few years to give yourself a break. Hmm. Now, what are you telling your clients who are currently employed still? How might expenses have changed in ways that, that subtly add up over time? You know, I think that a lot of people who still have their incomes Uh, will find themselves spending a lot less on leisure expenses, vacations, and things of that nature. Maybe it would make sense to use this unique opportunity to redeploy those funds towards more productive purposes. If you're not in a position of scarcity and you're able to do a little bit of planning and foresight, maybe this is the year to do Roth conversions or to look at more advanced financial planning strategies with all this money that used to be allocated towards lifestyle expenses that really no longer present themselves these days. Some bills might go up, though, because you're at home a lot. For example, electric bills, there might be other things that that catch you unexpectedly. 
Nelson, that's totally true. And I think it goes really back to measuring what matters. You know, people say that if you, uh, what gets measured gets improved. So you should really figure out whether or not your home lifestyle is going to be something that is higher these days than what you were used to, and then make cuts in other areas as appropriate. It, it's really all about putting forth an effort. The whole concept itself is, is very basic, and it's something that most people know inherently, but it's prioritizing doing the exercise and taking the time to actually do it. Now, the World Bank says this is going to be the worst recession since World War II. So should people be saving more if they can? If you're in a position to save, this would absolutely be a great time to prepare for future opportunities. People have said many things about many markets and uh, predictions have, have, have come in many different ways. There have been lots of surprises this year. It always makes sense for you to have cash for buying opportunities or to hold out during the hard times. And I think that it's correct to always be in that mindset anyway no matter what situation you're presently in. You're always going to have a future. So needing to put some money away for your future is a certainty. It's it's a necessary step that we all should take. So if you're in a position where you've been largely unaffected as far as your income goes with respect to the pandemic, then I think it makes a lot of sense for you to still continue saving towards your long-term goals. So, Paul, bottom line, what's the best thing that we can do to protect our financial situation at this time? I think the best thing that most people can do right now is to prepare themselves mentally in a, in a healthy way, not to view this as a crisis, but more like an opportunity where we'll still take the time to make a plan and take deliberate action steps. The world is different now, but a lot of the principles remain the same. What you tell yourself in your mind usually becomes true in reality. If you tell yourself that you have a little bit of abundance and that you've got the ability to still make ends meet while having a reasonably enjoyable lifestyle, those things will happen. If you tell yourself it's the end of the world and that you're not going to have enough money to do all the things you want to do and that you'll be very unhappy, that's going to happen as well too. So I think it's more of a mental game than it is an academic exercise. We've been speaking with Paul Lim, who is a financial planner and an advisor to the San Diego Financial Literacy Center. Paul, thanks so much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.